I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. About 3,600 years ago, one of the world's largest volcanic eruptions in the history of human civilization thundered in the Mediterranean Sea. More powerful than the Vesuvius eruption that destroyed Pompeii and dwarfing Krakatoa, the explosion, known as the Minoan eruption, threw ash far into Europe, affected tree growth as far away as California, generated tsunamis that devastated neighboring islands, and changed the balance of power in the Mediterranean, most notably by marking the end of Minoan cultural domination. Before the explosion, Santorini had been a thriving port of trade, run by an advanced Minoan civilization that had three-story homes, elaborate wall frescoes, indoor plumbing, gold sculptures, and bustling marketplaces that sold goods from around the Mediterranean, including grain, oil, and wine. The precursor to the explosion included some mini-eruptions and earthquakes that were enough to scare the city leaders into organizing an evacuation. They left in boats, and many archaeologists believe that the boats most likely perished in the tsunamis that followed the eruption. The rest of the landmass, and even surrounding islands, became covered in a thick layer of pumice and ash. On Santorini, the layer is about 60 meters thick, a depth of about two-thirds the size of a football field. Over time, this thickness has changed in some areas, but you can still find deep deposits almost everywhere. It's this thick layer of volcanic pumice that makes wines from Santorini Island so unique. With very little organic matter, the roots of any plants that grow there must dig deep and struggle to find nutrients. Tomatoes, grapes, and other products grown on the island have an almost electric flavor to them due to the unique soil. Isirtiko is the most famous of the grapes grown on the island, and the white grape can produce wines with remarkable ageability. You won't find much VSP here. Instead, you'll find a unique basket training system. The baskets keep the grapes low to the ground, and the bunches can be trained to grow while nestled within the basket walls. Each year, the new growth is wound around the basket to form another ring, and many baskets reach 80 to 100 years before being clipped at the base. 
After the basket is clipped, new shoots form the first ring of the next basket. The root systems for some of the plants are centuries old. The basket system is functional in Santorini's climate. It protects the bunches from the sometimes hurricane-force winds that may come up from Africa. These winds can rip across the island, destroying the leaves and fruit. In 2012, several producers lost about 75% of their crop right at flowering due to such a wind. So hold on to those 12s if you got them. Aside from the concentrated, electric, dry acerdico you can find, Santorini Island is also famous for Vincento, a sweet wine that may age in barrels for decades and is made from mostly the white varieties of acerdico and aidani, both of which are likely indigenous to Santorini. The grapes dry in the sun to resonate a bit before being pressed. Vincento has been produced on Santorini for many, many centuries. It was once a major part of Mediterranean trade and was popular in European courts. Santorini Vincento was, and probably still is in some cases, a breakfast drink that would give anyone laboring outside for the day a nice jolt of morning calories. It is seeing a resurgence in popularity today, especially on the international market. In the export market, you will mostly find dry acertico and Vincento from Santorini, but several other styles of wine abound on the volcano, including a night-harvested, slightly off-dried Nictiri, a slightly skin-fermented Brusco, and a drier form of something similar to Vincento, but made from red grapes, called Mezzo. Also in the export market, you'll mostly find three to five grape varieties dominating what is available, though approximately 30 grape varieties grow on the island. This number is down from about a century ago, when an estimated 100 varieties grew on the island, and it's mostly due to shrinking vineyards. There are about one-third the amount of vineyards today than there were 100 years ago. But despite an overall shift in the local economy from agriculture to tourism, a few passionate winemakers do beautiful work. Stay tuned to hear from one winemaker who, among other things, is a part of Santorini's Vincento Revival. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. I'm going to have a hard time with your last name. You know that. Parasquevampoulos wine. What's so hard about it? <laughs> so easy. I wonder why people call me Yanis P, which is not very, well, you know. That's how I named the file name on the computer. 
Yanis P. Yeah, because oh. I, I've Google searched your name like eight times enough to watch. I cannot blame you for doing so. Lately. I mean, I you know, it's not, no offense. No, 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 no. Even I may say that it is not as hard as Ayurgitiko. Yeah, it's not as hard as Levy either. Yanis P. Para Giannis Para Giannis Giannis from Yeah. Yeah. On the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine, Levy. How are you today? Nice to have you here. Great to be here. So you grew up in Athens. I did. I'm a city boy. What was that like? It was really nice. You know what? I still have those memories. Uh, uh, we didn't actually live in the city, but in the south suburbs. So we're just by the sea always. And uh, back then, it was more like a, a rural environment rather than the city. Uh, so too much nature. And yeah, I still have great images and, and souvenirs from this era. Because now you have a winery by the sea. I mean, it's literally right next to the sea. Yeah, the one in Santorini, it's literally by the sea. Yeah, true. Actually, it's like 10 meters from the, the, the seafront. So, yeah. And your English is surprisingly good for someone who grew up in Greece. Greeks are good with languages, you know, we're 10 million, and we do realize that if we don't speak languages, we then we are kind of isolated. We definitely don't expect non-Greeks, Americans, for instance, to speak Greek. I'm sorry. Well, you should be. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> in reality, you do speak Greek. I'm not saying that Greeks have invented everything. They haven't. Not even wine. But you use so many Greek words without knowing. A lot of Greek derivatives. I mean, the Bible much. too, right? Like Koine uh, Greek and stuff. Much. And when it comes into science, uh, then, you know, like doctors and stuff like that, it's basically, it is Greek. So, enology, for instance. And how did you pick that up? How did you get into enology? Ah, that's a funny story, though. It is actually a funny story because I was, I, I was a city boy. I had no vineyards or uh, didn't come from an area growing vines so I knew nothing at the university starting to become an agronomist and I was reaching my final year that's a five years course and I didn't I wasn't very enthusiastic about it I need to say and then I took a trip to Italy of all places and then in an area that had grown no vines at all in the Pado Valley and actually I entered you will not believe that lady I entered a wine shop and I did enter the wine shop, not to taste no wines, but I entered the wine shop to get shelter from a torrential rain. It was just, and then there was this guy, apparently he was bored to death, I have no idea. We've spent four hours sampling wines, and I stepped out this, from this wine shop with these big, big eyes, enlightenment. I knew that I had to do in life. You randomly went in and the guy kept you for four hours. Yeah. It was like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Like he grabbed you by the arm and said, like, I, wanted to, I want you to know this. It stuff. started without, you know, he, I said, he asked me where I was from. I said Greece. And then he went into, you know, discussions about Greece and Italy and patati patata. And without knowing, I ended, ended up spending four hours tasting wines. And then went back to Greece. I, I, I wasn't at this point 100% certain, but it was certainly a very uh, enlightening open eye experience for me. Went back to Greece. I had a discussion with somebody that I've trusted back then tremendously. And he said, you know what? Wine seems to be a good idea since it was the beginning of the Greek, should I say, revolution. Uh, and then I said, you know what? Why not? So this uh, is like the 80s? 
Uh, that was 83, actually. And then I applied to Bordeaux, University of Bordeaux, the Institution of Enology, and I, I was accepted. And I went there just to make a year's course. And I ended up doing five years of, I did everything that there was to do, including a PhD diploma. So, you know, I just couldn't stop. And it's like, you know, the moment that you are into the wine world in any way, you're in for life. And then, you know, that was it. What was it like being at the University of Bordeaux at that time? You know that this is an institution. The University of Bordeaux, you know. Uh, although they were funny moments, I'm very grateful. I need to say I've learned ev everything I did learn about winemaking. I did learn that in this faculty. So I'm nothing but full of reconnaissance. Joke is that for five years we were doing, as you may imagine, wine tasting once a week, sometimes twice a week. It was quite often. Within these five years, Levy, we've tasted Burgundy once. Just to see a specific flaw. It wasn't even a great Burgundy, because of course great Burgundies do not exist, not in Bordeaux at least. So back then, people were kind of funny. It was Bordeaux and then nothing else existed. Uh, things have changed now. How much of that education was on white wines? <laughs> uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> when it came to Sauterne, yes, but it was mainly Bordeaux reds. What did you do your PhD thesis on? Lactic bacteria. I was tracking a certain metabolic pathway on lactic bacteria. Back then, I thought it was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> do you do any mallows now? I do. I do. I do. I do. I do. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those very technical issues that people don't know. And why should they know about? Everybody speaks about wild yeast. And uh, I hate to say the word natural yeast. My God. Well, Ignorance. including you. <laughs> like it's on some know, of your labels and Would stuff. you ever th hear me say natural yeast? Well, you I mean, say this is ignorance, you know, wild ferment. So. Yeah, well, yeah, not natural yeast. This is ignorance. The, the debate about, about yeast, uh, I, I have to say it's always in fashion. We People love to discuss about wild yeast and this and that and uh, non-cerevisia strains and how you let nature take over and how nice that is and all that. They never speak about bacteria. And you know, in reality, what is really important, you may neglect yeast, you may go wild, you may go indigenous, whatever, and you may succeed when it comes to bacteria, then it's a totally different ballgame altogether. How should I understand that? Well, in the yeast world, if you, if you may, there is always a mechanism that does that in 99% of the cases, or in, in a big percentage anyhow, a good strain, a uh, so, so said good strain, will prevail at the end of the day. In the bacterial world, such a thing does not exist. All strains coexist and none prevails. This antagonism between strains does not, antagonism, so another Greek word, does not really exist. So at the malolactic fermentation, simultaneously, good strains and bad strains will coexist and work uh, side by side. And the, the end result that you're getting, it is the result of all these bacteria coexisting. 
which means that you end up having always, if you do not use select bacteria, you will always end up having a small percentage of POFs that you will not if you really control your malolactic fermentation. But many winemakers neglect this part of the equation and they just, although they would put all their efforts to control their yeast or go wild, when it comes to bacteria, they just don't even mess, they don't even consider the, the question. Big mistake, to my opinion. How did you move from the academic pursuit to working in the wine industry? I did not, actually, because on the same time, I'm a winemaker. I, yeah, owns two wineries, so I, I do wine. But at the same time, I hold a teaching post at the Athens University, the School of Enology. So I remain an academic. I still teach every now and then. Every now and then, having said that, every every week, actually. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully it's regular hours, you know. It, he it, might it, come it, today. It, 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 well, no, 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 no. It is, I, I, I try to be very punctual. I shouldn't be saying that today it was one of those days that I should have been in, in the faculty, but I'm not. I'm, uh, I took a day off. What's it like to teach young Greek students about wine? It totally depends on the uh, quality of the audience. There are some days that you are so bored to death because, you know, teaching is an, an, a very interactive thing. If you get response, then you enjoy it deeply. And if you, ha you get great questions and difficult ones, then you have to be tuned. And uh, if not, if everybody's yawning, uh, because they are not interested in what you are saying, then that affects your teaching dramatically and you, you also fade out. But in a lot of ways, for the timeline of Greek wine, you seem like second or third generation Greek winemaker for, you know, where... Well, technically, I'm first generation in my business because it was a greenfield project. So I've started my own business. Uh, what I may say is that my generation, it is the... I'm 56 right now. I think it's a fair statement to say, and it's not just me that says so, uh, that it has been this generation that did the great revolution, it's a strong word, let's say, uh, evolution. Uh, we, this generation, has uh, done a great deal for the Greek uh, wine industry, or should I say the new Greek wine industry. Uh, and then right now also there are very enthusiastic uh, young winemakers that that's the second generation that took over from where we led them and how did you end up in santorini ah it has been a choice uh, first of all uh, choice and luck on the same time or momentum i may say after bordeaux i was uh, hired by yanis butaris the big butari company to run his winery being the winemaker in his new, back then, I was 1988, uh, 89, uh, Butari Winery in, in Santorini. So I arrived not knowing that Santorini was doing wines. And You didn't uh, know they were made wine on the island? Not really. I need to say, back then, I knew very little about the Greek wine reality. I From from zero, I went to Bordeaux. And then back, coming back five years later, I knew more about uh, the French wine reality rather than the Greek one. I knew what the French were saying about the Greek wines, that they were, that they were awful, and that they couldn't understand this Retsina thing. That was all I knew. And uh, that, and also that has affected me uh, deeply, profoundly. So it was because of Yannis Butais that I discovered Santorini as a wine destination. 
uh, wine producing area. And then when I was sacked, because I was uh, later sav- they fired sav- you. savagely sacked, yes. But I mean, I it was a few boot. years. Yeah, five years, uh, which I'm grateful for because back then Butari was an institution and I learned greatly out. And as I'm saying today to my former boss, that he did two great things for me. One was to give me an opportunity and then teach me what he taught me for five years. And then the biggest, best thing he did for me, or probably even the first best thing that he did for me was that he sacked me. And that obliged me to do my own thing. And I will, we've, we've kept excellent relations with, uh, with Yanis Butaris and, and the family, nevertheless. So because of him, I discovered Santorini. And then I knew that I could not to say make a career in Santorini, but I knew that there was something to work upon and rediscover. And uh, it's what I did. And then it was quite successful from the very, very beginning. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And our Thalassitis, which was our first brand, became very rapidly in Greece, even, I would say, a kind of a collector's item. It became a kind of uh, wine that you should have. Uh, Fashion, if you may, yes, probably. Why not fashion? And then very rapidly we knew that we needed a red, a line of, of, of wines to complete. And then that was a real choice. Then I by, I knew that Nemea was the area to go. For which many, is a whole other region. Which is a totally different region. It's high up on the mountains in the Peloponnesus district. And Nemea, it is the largest appellation of the country. And it's just for reds. So it is the total... I would say, diametrically opposite of Santorini in terms of style, in terms of what you need to do in the vines. Uh, it's very different. That was a, a choice. And because Yeah was founded on upon the principle of not growing uh, international varieties, but just Greek varieties. It's what we wanted back then. And it's what we still need to do. And it's what we are still doing today. Uh, we are very straightforward. Santorini, we work with Asirtico period. Nemea, we work with Ayurgitico, period. Although this next spring, 2016, we will be planting two other varieties, Greek varieties, coming from the Peloponnese. But this is what we are preaching for. We do not believe, Levi, that the world, it sounds like a cliche, and maybe it is one, we do not believe that the world needs another Chardonnay. Even a, a darn good one, we don't need it. Nobody does. And for me, it wouldn't be even a challenge, being a Greek winemaker, to uh, try to excel or prove my ability by doing a Riesling or a Chardonnay or whatever. I don't think it's interesting. And probably, no, 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 I'm sorry for interrupting you. I don't think that I would be sitting here today in front of you if I was a Greek winemaker that was doing a Cabernet. Do you find a different reception on the domestic Greek market for Acertico and Agiertico than you do on the export market? Do they respond differently? Yes and no. Uh, Let me think. You see, Greeks are very enthusiastic embracing imported goods in our country. And this is true for practically everything but wine and food. Greeks remain totally faithful traditionalists you may say but totally faithful 
to the, the foodstuff that comes out of their own country, to, to the point that they would be willing, even on those very obscure, economic, economically obscure days that we're going through, they would be willing to pay more money for, say, a fresh grouper, if they know that that comes from the Aegean Sea and it's not imported, or for even a simple lamb chops, if they know that it's a lamb grown in, in the Greek nature rather than New Zealand they would be willing to pay more in order to get that. They believe strongly in their own production, and they have been extremely faithful to all this new Greek adventure in wines. I guess that it's oxymoron to say, another Greek word, that the Greek public discovered the Greek varieties simultaneously with the non-Greeks. As those wines improved year by year, I guess the international public was discovering them in the same time as the Greek public did. So it went kind of hand to hand. So what did that evolution look like on the ground in Santorini? You arrived well, in 89. Well, how's yeah, that different well, than that? I have to give all the credit to Yanis Boutais. Back then, for me being a very young and inexperienced winemaker, I couldn't see the greatness in those wines, far from. And he had to convince me by telling me that don't see what you are tasting today. There's potential in here, and that you will see it in the future. And why did Yanis Butaris, why could he see that and I couldn't? He's a fourth generation, and it was, if you may, embedded in his genes, this, this intuition. Uh, and he was right, definitely he was. Santorini, well, you know, we didn't do much in the sense that there isn't much that you can do on the vine growing front. Not really. You've seen those vines. What can you do? Nothing much, but to respect the way that they have been cultivated for thousands of years. You cannot irrigate. You cannot change the yield. You cannot do any other canopy management. There is no phytosanitary treatment that you need to introduce because there aren't any disease. So actually... There's nothing much you can do. What we did, what we all of us did on, on the Santorini front, was actually to work on the winemaking techniques in the direction that those techniques would help us to bring forward in a more clear way the, uh, the personality of a Sirtico. That Sorry. seems to have meant lower temperature and more reductive winemaking in general. Uh, all kinds of stuff, yes. That, uh, a bit of cold soaking chilling berries before processing, working with the lees, working with the skeins, techniques that they were well known in other parts of the world, and we didn't know them, and we didn't apply them, and we have never applied them. And you see, this is the thing. Techniques, it's one thing. The most important is how do you choose to use those techniques? Uh, you may very well choose them to make copies, of, of uh, Burgundy's or Bordeaux or whatever. Or you can use those techniques to bring forward the characteristics of your own varieties and your own terroir. And it's what I chose to do. So on Santorini, it was mainly applying state-of-the-art techniques in the winemaking front. Where in Nemea, oh, well, then the ball game is totally different. There, you have to reinvent the art of growing grapes that may lead to big reds. And this is something that Greeks had lost in depth of years. So 
we arrived in Nemea in 19, 1996, 1997. We bought the, our first vineyard and we reinvented totally. And what we do today on, the, on those vines has absolutely nothing to compare with what it was done 20 or 25 years ago. So that has been a huge ride. And uh, to this day, for the Reds in Emea, I can assure you that we finally pinpointed what we need to do as techniques in the winery. So we, we will probably change some stuff, but it will be marginal. All our efforts are concentrated into how we will better grow Ayurgetico in order to have what we have in our heads as the, the model of the wine that we would like to produce. What seems to be working so far in terms of growing Aguillertica? Ha! Huh. What we did, we totally changed the canopy density. We practically doubled the number of vines per hectare. This was a milestone. Then we've raised, raised the canopy. We also started to control the stress uh, by measuring and, if needed, even irrigate in some cases, not always. So that was, if you may, the first line of actions that we undertook in order to regain the style of wine that once existed and that it was lost through the years. Strangely enough, if you go into, into Tuscany 30 years ago, the same mistakes had been done and they were probably addressed in the same way. Now we are just about to uh, set a new milestone, and for the very first year, in the, this coming spring, we will be planting uh, Ayurgetico clones for the first time, clones that have been selected for specific reasons and attributes, uh, and not to mention that those clones that they will plant, we will be planted. We will plant one clone in 2016, and then hopefully another four different clones of Ayurgetico in 2017. Not only they are selected clones, and that's a premiere for Ayurgetico, but it's all they are also virus free, which is a first because which before is also, which they is couldn't also find first. it. So we believe that that will bring a totally new era in Ayurgetico. I guess the wines will become even more substantial, um, more structured, phenolically more interesting, always remaining in this what we call the European elegance. Because, you know, like I guess all winemakers of this world, at least all European winemakers, we were impressed by this big, fat, not Greek wedding, big, fat, red style that uh, Australia or even California uh, have put in, in the market. And like every other winemaker, we were also intrigued to uh, see if we could do something similar. Fortunately, I need to add, we cannot. Fortunately, our varieties and our terroir, I'm talking about the red wines, are taking us towards what you may identify as the European elegance. Reds, that they are elegant, not impressive by their structure, but very elegant, with depth, with a foot-driven character, with a good acidity. Reds that they that you can definitely drink more than one glass and not be without being tired. Sometimes even reds that you may see fifteen percent alcohol and eighteen months of oak and not being able to see neither the alcohol 
nor the Barrique. So this is the style. There are, and I'm, I'm very, very comfortable in this style and approach. Nevertheless, the grapes that we are growing right now, the agricultural grapes, yes, they do have flaws, which we are thinking that we will be able to deal with in the next few years. So it's very exciting. Do you think the vigor will be higher in the non-virus clones? Not necessarily. Agorgitico is vigorous enough on its own. What viruses do, in theory, it is that the combination of those four different strains of viruses that we do have, they can drop the phonelic potential even down to 40%. So this is one tool that they are making your grapes to ripen later. So with this big climate change and the global warming that does exist, I'd be surprised to hear, what we have seen is that the weather pattern has changed and we need to bring our grapes in maturity earlier and we have to find ways of helping uh, the berries in such a way that the phenolic maturity will come hand to hand with the sugar maturity. This is the idea, and it's what we're trying to do with those clones. Because sometimes in the Maya, you've seen Aguiertico, and also other regions, Aguiertico blended with Cabernet, and sometimes that might be about tannins, right? It might be about. Well, that's the easy approach, and you know, we've done it also. We've done one cuvee after having done five different, 100% Aguiertico. We did one, which was, let's see how it blends with the non Greek variety. And I, I need to say it was more based on the Super Toscan approach where you would have 70% of your indigenous grape helped by a 30% as an average of a non-Greek variety such as Cab or Syrah. Yes, it works, but this is the easy approach. This is the easy way out by using a Cabernet or a Syrah. You're trying to, exactly as you said, find through those berries what it's missing phenolically from the agriculture. Okay, it is. A, it is. A, it is. A, it has been a success. Nevertheless, it's far more interesting to see if you can actually work with Agriotico in order to gain all these attributes from the variety and without boring them from a different non-Greek variety. And the nurserymen have been hard at work on that. It's a well-known technique. It takes time, though. It takes. It took. Now we are. It's year number seven. And on year number eight, we will have the first 2,000 plants to plant. It doesn't happen from day one. And funny thing is that theoretically, some do say, and theoretically, yes, it may happen. You may end up at the end of the day finding that the virus-free, that the wines that are coming from the virus-free plants may be worse than the ones coming from the ones that had viruses. Thing is that you will never know if you don't do it. And this is what people don't know about winemaking, that it is a very challenging and a very precarious a job that you don't really know where things will end. You start planting something new and nobody has done it before you, so you have no data about what you should be doing. It may end up being a great success, but uh, you know, chances are that it might end up being a, a huge flop that will reset you back for a good 10 years. 
Because a lot of times I think when we think of Greece, we think of an ancient wine growing area where there's a lot of familiarity with winemaking from centuries and millennia of making wine there. It is true. What you're saying is correct. And in, in some areas, you can see this time capsule thing effect. Santorini, it's a time capsule. Nemea, well, although Ayurgitico has been grown for millennia, very long, nevertheless, that doesn't mean that people didn't make mistakes. And they did make mistakes. I'll give you an example. The day that we started replanting a vineyard up there in the mountains of Kutsi, in the Nemea appellation, and we were planting double density as the locals were, an old-timer came by, around 80 years old, and he said to me, oh, you know, Paraskevopoulos, Paraskevopoulos is my family name, you are Nemea's disaster. I said, really? That's yeah. nice of him. Yeah, yeah it was, he was a very... <laughs> Friendly you know, dude. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I said, you know what? You may be right by saying so, but I'm afraid you have to justify why you're saying so. He said, well, you know, because you are taking us back in time, parenthesis, another Greek word, back in time, they would plant even 10,000 vines per hectare. Which is a lot. Like anywhere uh, uh, in Europe, that would be a lot. Yeah, uh, right now they were doing... The actual condition was 3,000. So they were planting three times more densely. So he said, you are taking us back in time. I said, why is that? He said, because you are planting so densely. I said, really? And how were the wines back there? Ha! He went. You couldn't drink them. They were too black and too astringent. So you smile. Because you realize that there's still the memory of the style of wine that once existed and what the Nemeans did, actually, because Ayurgitico, it's not like a Pinot. It is a forgiving grape. You can raise the yield per hectare and still get something drinkable. Obviously, not a, not a big red, but still something pleasant. It's a flexible variety. So what they had done through the years, they started abandoning the difficult-to-cultivate slopes and they were getting down in the valley which is much easier to cultivate and they were start planting more patience and raise yields what they were doing slowly slowly they were raising the yield and they were losing the characteristic of their appellation to the point that they had forgotten it to the point that when we arrived 25 years ago the local neman identified as a local wine a kind of rosé wine that was there just for a year. Even in the wine between the winemakers, the perception was that with Ayurgitico you do nothing but wine that reds that wouldn't age more than a year. So it was a totally different perception because slowly, slowly they've lost the characteristic of their own uh, appellation. And there you had the old timer saying, "Ha, you are a disaster because you are taking us back in time." Yeah, you know. Probably, but the wine that was done back then, probably it was what the mayor should have been even today. So the old-timer remembered a wine yes. from the region with tannins, yes. which is what you'd like to have again. Exactly. And when you went to Santorini, which you've described as a, a time capsule, and you arrived in the 80s, what did the old-timers on the island tell you about Santorini? Well, back then, it is true that one of the things that we did, the Butari team did, we gave incentives, and when one says incentives, it means that within a day, we doubled the price of grapes. Because like uh, a bit like Champagne, wineries in Santorini do not own the vineyards, they depend upon the growers. 
It's exactly like champagne for different socioeconomic reasons, but at the end of the day, it ends up being the same. So we rose the price of grapes by a factor two under one condition, that they would harvest when we will tell them to harvest. They were, since they were making primarily oxidized and strong in alcohol whites, they used to harvest mid-September, which was far, far too late. We gave the incentive and we insisted of harvesting much, much earlier. So for that, that was disturbing slightly the time capsule thing. And we came in and we asked them to do something that normally wasn't done. And in the beginning, of course, they were very much, they reacted to that. But the incentive was so strong that finally they did so, and now it is uh, what we do. What was the situation in terms of vineyards at that time? In the 80s, you look around Santorini, and what do you find? <laughs> you know, even today, some Greeks will tell you, oh, yes, we know Santorini does wine. Oh, yes, we know you do wines on Santorini, but where the heck do you get all these grapes from? The thing is that they arrive on the island as visitors, and they drive by or walk by those vineyards, and they do not even recognize them as vines. Vines are everywhere on the island. The uh, entire island is one vineyard. thing is that back then, in the late 80s, we had a significant larger amount of vine growers, and more hectares were in full production, a fraction of which has been abandoned, and the main reason is that, uh, well, you know, Santorinians have ways of making fortunes through tourism. And uh, it is true that young generations during the mid-90s had the tendency of abandoning those vineyards. Now, and so there was a, a significant loss of the quantity of hectares in production. Good thing is that the local community of the island has realized, fortunately, that their well-being and even their uh, touristic industry, tourist industry, uh, has much to gain from the vine growing on the island. And they today see that as a global capital on which they need to capitalize. Uh, so you even see young Santorinians thinking of, oh, you know what, let's go back in those vineyards. And we even see uh, young guys asking us advice about how should they be planting and all that. So you just deal with the Sertico, although there are a few different white grapes on the island. Okay, let me let me uh, think. I will reverse the question. We are a small country in terms of surface and growing grapes. We produce 15 times less grapes than Italy or Spain or France. Or China, as should I be saying, because China became number two in the world. So yes, we are 15 times smaller than those big players. Like us, you have other countries. Austria, Germany, although Germany is three times Greece in terms of, of grapes. And when I ask you, my, my statement is the following, all, that all those small countries have one chance in placing one grape variety in the international market. Think Austria. Grunewetlina, think Germany, Riesling, even 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 New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, whatever. I mean, name it. Uh, it's, it's small countries, one variety. I'm not saying that other varieties won't have a chance, but the mainstream will be one. For Greece, 
dice has been thrown, and we I think we all agree that this one variety is Santorini Asiatico. So yes, there are other varieties on the island. Some have a certain interest. I'm thinking of Aidani probably, which is a bit more fragrant than Asiatico, but then it lacks the structure of Asiatico. Yes, there are others, but Asiatico will be the main, is the main variety. Asiatico is the, the grapes on, on which we should be looking into and capitalizing and placing our, uh, what would be the right expression? Your All, chips in the pot. Yeah, the, the specific weight should be Asiatico. It is Asiatico. It will be Asiatico. How does Asiatico grown on Santorini differ from Asiatico grown elsewhere in Greece? Tremendously. In Greece, varieties don't tend to travel, not because they cannot, but because they don't. So in the map, people would be always planting Agiorgitico and nothing else. In Xinomavro, in Naus, the same, or Moscofilia or in Mandinia. Asiatico is the only probably case of the one variety that has traveled uh, around the country, uh, in the north, in the south, you know, in the east, the west. Uh, you'll find Asiatico everywhere within the Greek territory, but also no, the only variety that has been planted in other countries, such as Australia. The moment that it leaves Santorini, it becomes a totally different beast. It becomes, I may say, more friendly, more conventional, less striking, steely. It has a good acidity always. It becomes more fragrant. It becomes more aromatic when it grows up north, in in the Greek north. On Santorini, though, it is what we all know, the very steely, minerally, with a briness at its aftertaste. Those whites that are there for wine lovers more than wine beginners. And when I think of those characteristics, I mean, they also describe what seems to be what you're going for for Thalcides, which is an mm -hmm. Asiatico that's very briny, salty. Yeah, saline. I think of, of, of all Asiatico of, of Santorini, I think Thalcides is the most, should I say, hostile? <laughs> yeah, the, the highest in acidity in the yeah, briskets. The, 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 the more steely, the more acidic in a sense, yes. And that vision came to you how? I mean, why did you decide to do that? when you started in 94? You know, that was, that was that's a very, very good question. And we were so much afraid. Basically, it's what I liked. And when we were just ready to put our first Thalassitis in the market, I remember it was 7,000 bottles of 1994 vintage. The attributes of the wine were so much far away from what Greeks used to embrace back then, which we, we were frightened. I loved the wine, and I was saying, but I was asking myself, will Greek consumers go for this wine, acidic as it is? You know what? I was surprised to see that they absolutely did, and I basically believe that they did, because those wines were so food-driven and so easy to pair with such a great and broad uh, spectrum of different recipes. And in a lot of ways, that style often seems somewhat reductive, even into the bottle with no longer using corks. But True. Some years it does. Some years, for instance, the 2013, the previous vintage, was far more reductive than the 14. Uh, yes. There is a question, we've been through that in private, if you may, about the oxygen management. Acertico being a phenolic variety and polyphenols being the uh, those molecules that they will automatically react with oxygen. It means that uh, acidic has a very specific needs 
to the amount of oxygen that will go through the stopper through, uh, during the aging. And it's what we are working upon right now to identify what's the, the optimum uh, condition. Because a lot of times people say acertico as a grape variety is high in acidity, high in tannins, and gets oxidized easily. Well, it, it makes sense because high in tannins means that tannins are the, sub, the, the substrate on which oxygen will work and lead to oxidation. If you do not have tannins, then you do not have this oxygen capture. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you can see that with white burgundy, right? That, you know, sure. there's tannins and then it develops differently yeah. over time. The thing is, oxygen management, it's a huge, huge discussion. It's new to winemakers. When I was studying in Bordeaux, things were so simple. People would teach us that, you know what? Oxygen is, a, is an enemy, and all you have to do is just avoid this enemy. And there were all these techniques of, of avoiding, or what you would call reductive techniques, to avoid any even contact with oxygen. And then we realized that, yes, oxygen may be an enemy, but oxygen may also be a great uh, ally under condition that you know how to, to manage oxygen. So this is the thing. And we shouldn't be confounding oxidation with evolution. They're two very different things. And to my understanding, yes, we all embrace evolution uh, under condition that this evolution allows you still to be able to see the variety. If it doesn't, then what's what's your objective? Just to say that this is an old vintage? That's kind of BS, if you, if you excuse my French. Uh, anybody can do an oxidized wine. Is this is this really the uh, the goal? No, the goal is to have, at the end of the day, a much better wine through evolution, where oxidation may be a small part of it, but in any case, it should never be the only attribute. And unfortunately, even to this day, we see too much of that in many areas of the world. So you're saying if it makes all wines taste the same, it's not a good thing? Obviously. And what do you see as the vision of Acertico? What is it? What is its characteristics that it might lose? Indirectly, I will, I will come back to this uh, amazing experience that I had, probably the one of the most striking moments in my career as a winemaker when I've tasted a wine of Sandarini that was 153 years old. And I was amazed to see how this wine, 153 years old, was still very much alive, vibrant, but you could see a Sirtico. What had happened through the, all those years? Well, the wine had mellowed down. It wasn't this steely, even hostile, very perky dimension that it had when it was young, surely, as young as Sirtico do have. It was far more mellow, but then the acidity was there. It was still very much alive, very vibrant. And that is something that you don't see often in other varieties. I think Acertico, growing on Santorini, gives us a huge opportunity to really, really discuss about terroir expression and longevity. And what does Santorini bring to that picture? It's all about the soil, everything. It's linked. Every characteristic of those wines Every single one of them is linked to the soil in a very profound way. The fact that you have this acidity, although the latitude is so much to the south, you wouldn't expect to find acidity. Uh, well, it is linked to the soil because we have all those minerals, but we don't have potassium. 
So lack of potassium brings down your pH and gives this vibrant acidity. So there you go. Minerality? All right, here's the question. Is it enough to have a pack of minerals in the soil to discuss about minerality in wines? Definitely not. It is not enough. In order to express minerality, apart, obviously, the need of having those minerals, you have to have two other things. One is a very mature root system that can take advantage of those minerals. You plant any young vine on a mineral, a rich mineral soils, you'll never get minerality. On Santorini, we have those root systems that go back a few centuries. So it's a very mature root system on a very rich in minerals soil. Because you're not dealing with phylloxera. Because phylloxera is a safe environment. And then also there's a third element which we don't speak enough. Santorini, it's a very healthy soil in the, in the term that because of our weather condition and lack of organic matter, lack of clay in the soil, because of that, we have no, we don't really have disease like mildew and uh, botrytis and stuff like that, which means that we do not really treat our vines. Although not certified, basically it is an organically grown vineyard. How does that affect minerality? Well, it does. Because actually, if you don't have a healthy soil, in other words, if you have a soil on which you have for years and years and years brought in pesticides and herbicides and mainly pesticides, what you do actually through those pesticides, you destroy what we called a certain type of microorganisms of the soil, which are called mycorrhiza. And these ones are the bridge between the minerals and the root. So if you have even have a mature system on a very rich in mineral soils, but you have input on this soil, huge amounts of pesticides, you will never get minerality. So in Santorini, fortunately, all these three things are tuned. We don't use pesticides. We do have a very mature system on a soil that is totally packed with minerals, all kinds of minerals, but iron, fortunately, and potassium, fortunately. And you can pick somewhat earlier, so you're preserving that freshness. You do. And it doesn't rain much. It doesn't rain at all. 25 years of winemaking in Santorini, I never saw a drop of rain during harvest, or even far before harvest. Let's say that the last rainfalls would occur sometimes May. It rains like, huh, like 500 millimeters per year, but during winter on a soil that has absolutely no capacity to retain this water, which drains out since it's like sand. So the only humidity, the only water that these plants do see, it's the morning mist. Thus, the extremely low yield, which on a very abundant vintage would be 25 hectoliters per hectare, half of Bordeaux. It's funny that there would be morning mist because it's also an attribute of another place with high acid and high tannins together, which is uh, the Piemonte for Nebbiolo. It's also known True. for. So one of the things that's interesting. Why didn't you say Albarino? Oh, I don't know. I don't uh, think of it as a. I think of it as a granite-based vine. That's why, and I. I don't think you have granite. Like because uh, when True, I. True, but then you have again this striking acidity that it definitely has a total 
totally different origin. It's more malic acid. But then, sometimes I do see, I see in Albarino this attribute that Asiatico may have, and this is the structure, which I love in whites, you know. In the good Albarino. In the good Albarino. Yeah, yeah. it's hard, you know, sometimes it's a little... Yeah, 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 I know, but you know, what's the virtue? I mean, we're talking about whites. I mean, if the big whites have to have structure, otherwise they're easy drinks. One of the things that's interesting about Santorini is I've been there a couple of times and there's a part of the island that's sunk under the sea because of a volcanic explosion, eruption in the Minoan civilization. Absolutely, yes. And there's a large body of water called the caldera in the middle of the island. And Absolutely. when I have swam in the caldera, I've noticed that it wasn't... You're not a faint-hearted, are you, Michael? Well, see, no <laughs> one told me that that was a bad thing to do. That's why I have no, no, no. It's where, where, more where, fingers now, you know. No, no, it's where we, where I swim, at least. It's very exciting to dive in and know that there's nothing... For the, for the next 400 meters, there's nothing but water under, under your feet. Yeah, it's exciting. One of the things I've noticed when I've come out is that my skin feels different. And yeah. The second time it happened, I realized maybe that yeah. because it was so far in the water. Because it's a vo- volcano where no. what you felt, it's more salt. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a much saltier sea than the ocean that you guys have the experience of. In in all ways, the Mediterranean Sea is saltier than the ocean, and the Aegean Sea is the saltier part of the Mediterranean Sea. So, yeah. So is that salt in the mist that's in the vines in the morning? Sure. Yeah. Do you think uh, that somehow carries through or no? It does. If you ma- if you actually measure sodium on in these wines, you will always find more sodium in these wines than you would in any other wine, which is actually sea salt. It's the sea spray that will lie on the berries. And you can even taste this salinity. This brightness even enhances the impression of minerality, and it definitely boosts the food friendliness that those wines do have. So you decided with Yea to make a number of different Santorini based on a Certico, but with different process. And what is the diversity there? Well, one, it's the uh, totally straightforward approach where you do what everybody does. I mean, cold soaking, stainless steel, selected yeast, uh, and midwork with the lease. This is our Thalassitis, which is our most mainstream Santorini. And then we did a a wine based on uh, fermentation that we didn't add any selected yeast. We just left the indigenous uh, yeast to take over. This is our Assyrtico wild ferment. And then part of this wine ferments also in all different kinds of wood. So it is a more complex, more broad wine than the Thalassitis. And then we do another dry. It's, again, a Thalassitis, but in this case, it's just oak fermented at, at its total, 100%. So three very different wines, although they come from the same variety and the same appellation. How do they respond when you open a bottle? Does one need a decant? Uh, Does uh, one... Yes, yes. All Assyrtico, even the ones that never have seen wood, do specifically the ones that have never seen wood, specifically the ones that come from stainless steel, they are totally beautified by at least an hour of decanting. Actually, treat those acerticos as if they were reds, in a sense. Decant them, age them, propose them even with the fatty meat, 
obviously by saying so, yes, obviously oysters would be the ideal, but they go far beyond the stereotype of seafood and fish. You can try those striking whites, even with fatty meat like duck or pork, and you would see how this acidity just totally works through the fat. And your fatty meat seems less fatty and your acidic or less acidic. Very interesting. So, yes, although whites, we treat them as if they were, they were reds. Because I've heard you say a certico is a, a red wine grape that has no color. Exactly. It's, yeah, because exactly, as I said, when somebody would tell you, you know, this is a wine that you need to age, that you need to decant, and you need to try with lamb, what would you think? They were crazy. I would think that. No, no. You would think that he was talking about a red wine. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. But then, but hey, surprise, no. What about the actual taste differences between those diverse bottlings that you make? Do you see a clear difference between the wild ferment and the standard Thalcides? Is there something that's really… My experience in the wild ferment started in 2008. Obviously, there's the the part of the, the attribute that does come from these three different types of wood that we are using. We're using French oak, American oak, and French acacia. So there's this part that does not exist in the standard Thalassitis. The, the striking thing is that although every year we know that we have a totally different constellation of yeast that do exist, prevail, and work, we get one very specific characteristic at the aftertaste that we never see in the controlled fermentations. And this characteristic, it is not an attribute of the yeast. It is what the wild yeast does to the acertico. It helps us, those yeasts, bring forward a varietal characteristic of the acertico that selected yeast fail to do so. And this is very, very distinct clear, absolutely three-dimensional taste of grapefruit. Pamplemousse. Pamplemousse, not grapefruit. Pamplemousse, yes, at the aftertaste, which is so distinct and powerful that it even overpowers the barrique. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, fantastic. Because a lot of times barrique tannins come out on the finish, but you're saying no, that it finishes with No, in this fruit. case, it's, it starts as such, and then the ending, it's the wine that takes the lead and actually imposes its character. But we never get this characteristic when we are fermenting with selected yeast. So when you are in the winery and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to make a selected yeast wine, I'm going to make a wild ferment wine, yep. are you using the same parcels picked on the same day? And how do you decide? No, we are trying to use uh, grapes that are slightly more mature for the wild ferment. And we are doing a selection, we are actually using berries from a big number of, of parcels. And the, the reason is that, hypothetically, if you would use just one plot of vine, of vineyard, for this wild ferment uh, wine, chances of having a bad strain that would prevail would be tremendously big. So by actually splitting down into many different parcels, you're bringing down this risk. Which is something that's typical in Santorini anyway, to blend a yeah. lot of different parcels. In, in, yes, Santorini, you know, all the vineyards are planted on this very same type of soil, which is this volcanic pumice. It's like a topping. It's like, a, you know, a cake topping. You can dis distinct this soil very easily. If there is a difference in certain areas of this small island, it would be more linked to elevation rather than the type of the soil. So, yes, the, the typical process is to blend parcels. 
Because there are parts of Santorini where it's a little colder. Linked to elevation, yes. It's the vineyards of Pyrrhus, which are coming uh, in slightly later. They mature like uh, a week or 10 days later than the, the rest of the Asiutico. And something that you don't hear about a lot, really, in many places in the world, is that you're doing aging under the sea. Like you've experimented with <laughs> taking bottles. Yeah, it was one of the of the uh, as a retro in a retrospective. I have found out that we are eight wineries around the world doing the same thing. But that's the whole world, not in Santorini. No, no, that's <laughs> the whole whole world. Yes, uh, yes. What we did, we started in 2009, and since then, every vintage we are submerging like 500 bottles. Under the, uh, we submerge them in the sea, and we arbitrarily we chose to age them for five years, and we did that because that was one of the ways of dealing with the oxygen issue. We wanted to see what a totally reductive environment would do, and this is the only one condition that you may have: aging a wine and having a zero oxygen uptake. And yes, we've we've surfaced the first batch, two thousand and nine, last year. And we've tasted the wine back to back with its equivalent, the same batch that had aged in the cellar. And it was a world of difference to the favor of the one that had aged underwater. To the point that I said to my partner, hey, Leon, you know what we should be doing? Probably we should flood our cellar. <laughs> uh, he wasn't happy with the idea. You're thinking to yourself, you know, I'd like another bottle for dinner tonight. Let me go diving. Yeah, but I'm a <laughs> diver. So, you know, I, I'm combining passions. One of the other things that's totally different than what one might expect from the normal is the Redsina that you make. How did you get involved with that, and what are the differences between your Redsina and some others that I might find in Greece? Uh, coming back from France, as I said, I was more linked to the French reality and the image that the French had about the Greek wines. And it, back then, you know, Levy, if, if I did have a magic wand, I would have probably disappeared Redsina from the face of this world, and that would have been a crime. Fortunately, I did mature. I realized that Retsina is part of our legacy. And if each one of us abolishes its tradition, we'll all end up eating and drinking the same thing, which is a very boring world. So I chose to be rather proud rather than ashamed of this type of wine. And I decided to see where were the, where were the limits as a winemaker. So what we do, first of all, we really take, we choose excellent grapes, and it's not Sabatiano, it is Aroditis, from a very, very striking vineyard at an altitude of a thousand meters. It's really fantastic grapes. And what we do, we vinify them at the state of the art of wine, white wine making, and we just add a hint of very good quality pine resin. And we end up having a very herbal it's it is intense, it is explosive, but in a herbal way. Not in a turpentine, not in a white spirity, not in a paint removery way, as sometimes retina may be. What people do not know it is that the retina, it is a non-vintage uh, wines, and they're wines that they shouldn't age. It, when they age, that they acquire this paint removery aspect, which nobody likes. But it's probably hard to tell because it's not vintage. Exactly. But when they're young and when they're well done then yes, they can be extremely refreshing. And you have this kind of small herbal explosion in your palate, which totally refreshes your palate. How should I put it? It's as if you're croaking a mint in the same way that this mint would refresh your palate. And then by having a refreshed 
palate, you can re-experience your uh, your dinner. The dinner does the same thing. Obviously, it's very powerful. And obviously, if you choose to pair it with something that is very delicate, like a very nice, fresh grilled fish, it will be a disaster. But then, if you go in some type of ethnic cuisines where garlic or onions or spices like curry and stuff are so powerful, then these retinas may be the choice. And you also make a vinegar. Speaking, I do. Speaking about cuisine. Yeah, we do vinegar and, you know, some told me some. There even some that said, I need to add, that the vinegar that he did, it's the best thing he ever did, which wasn't much of a compliment for my was wife. Was that the same old guy that was in the Maya? <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know. You have friends in this world, don't you? Uh, we do, because we do a vinegar. It's as if we have to, because acirtico, as I said, we do that only on Santorini. Acirtico is very phenolic. So if you start getting the, the, the juice from the press, apart of the free-run mast, the presses tend to be far more phenolic. And those wines definitely will be very easy to oxidize and they will be very rustic-like. We don't want that. And we don't want to add this must into our thalassitis. So what we do, since we have all this must as a byproduct, we choose, instead of doing a poor wine or a bad second bad label, we turn it into a vinegar, which we end up selling very expensively, even more expensively than our wine. So it's a good thing. And in a way, giving more credence to the idea that the phenolic wines oxidize quicker. Phenolic wines oxidize quicker, yes. And uniquely for winemakers I know on Santorini and uh, often in the world, you also make beer. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yes. And I what's do. that project been like? It's, it sounds like a joke. Yeah. Once upon a time, there was a Brit, there was a Greek, there was a, an American, and there was a Serbian. All these four were friends. And Which the, one was the rabbi? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> ah, kosher beer. Could be. Ah, thank you for the, thank you, thank you for the thought. Yeah, I'll, give, I'll give it a thought. Uh, and you know, there was no absolutely no culture about uh, small breweries and uh, local brewing in in our country. So we said, why not? It started as a joke. In the beginning, we wanted to create an, um, a nano brewery that would do fifty liters of beer per day. Right now, we do a thousand liters. So we're like twenty times bigger than what we have planned in the beginning. It's been yeah. successful. Oh, it's going very strong, yes. We need again to double the, our facility again, once again. It goes really well. It's a good beer. I feel like both your beer and your wine projects have been very successful. But, but you know, the funny thing is, I need to say that I'm not the brewer. Uh, it's my Serbian partner who is the brewer. But I became very close to, to all this brewing process, and I saw the big, strange, big differences that separate brewers than winemakers. And it's a totally different world. I need to say that one fits in with the other beautifully. How so? Well, winemakers, think of a chef. And think of a chef that you tell him that, you need, you know what, you will cook with only one ingredient. Choose the one that you would like to, one. You'll have these big eyes staring at you. And then you know what? You won't be controlling the quality of your raw material. So he will be, he, your chef will start to be very kind of, what are you talking about? And then, oh, chef, forgot to tell you, you will be cooking once a year. These are the winemakers. These are who we are. We have very limited access to raw materials. Sometimes we don't control them that 
well because of the weather. And at the end of the day, we produce once a year. And then we are judged upon that. In order to embrace all that, you have to be a very strong-minded person. You have to control very closely what you're doing. You have to be very competent. And it's very stressful. And also you have to find reasons to invent reasons and convince people that don't like your wine because you will fail ultimately. You cannot always succeed. You'll have to convince them why it's their fault for not understanding your greatness. Brewers are far more relaxed. They have a huge access to all kinds of materials, raw materials, which they totally control in terms of quality. And then they cook every day. They brew every day. And when they do fail, well, then they toss it down the the uh, the gutter and they start again. No yeah. hard feeling. And they could probably add whatever they want. So, yeah. So they can be be more. It's more playful. Wine. You have you have to be. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be structured. You have to be competent. Beer, you can be playful and, uh, you know, you wake up in the morning and say, oh, today I feel like brewing an IPA or next morning, you know, I'll try something new. It's more like a game. So the one balances the other beautifully in a sense. But something they both have in common is that they've been very commercially successful. And if you I were think to, so, yes. If you were to look at that, what would you say the keys to that are? Because, you know. There's not so many hugely successful brands out of Greece. Here you have one in wine and one in beer that are doing quite well. Well, success. It's, it's a big discussion. There are many things that they go into that. One of them is competence. The other is luck. The third is momentum. And you have to line up all three if you need to speak about success. In the wine business, I think that the momentum was excellent when we arrived 20 years ago. And we both had a, a combined, Leon and myself together, had competence that did help us. And we made, I think we did make right choices for choosing to work with Greek varieties. And yeah, you know, uh, we brought those wines in the international market the moment where those wines started to be needed. And then through the years, we proved that we were consistent. In our beer adventure, it was stubbornness, I guess, and great strong belief that it was a good idea. You see, it, we did that in 2011, which were the moment where the economic crisis in Greece was skyrocketing. And before doing that also, Levy, I've, we've asked four distributors, beer distributors on the island, working on the island, should we be doing that? And they all said, no, don't. It will be an economic disaster. You will fail. You won't be able to sell your beer. Which gave us cold feet. And then we, we for a year, we stalled the, the, the project. And then we said, no, they are wrong. They are dead wrong. They cannot see the opportunity and they cannot see how different this beer will be from any other beer. So we believed strongly in our idea. And if, if I may I sound like uh, an old timer giving advices, but if there's one advice that I can, or one, if not advice, one moral or ethical outcome of this story was that, well, you know what? If you do believe your, your idea, if you strongly believe your idea, go for it. Chances are that you are right and you will succeed. You came in at Santorini, an interesting time for wine. You watched it go through from what seems to be from an outsider's perspective, strength to strength, where it's 
been a lot of learning, but it's been a lot of success. Right now seems like a very dynamic time for the area. You worked with some of the key personalities. One was Giannis Butaris, who you already spoke about. But mm -hmm. one was Mr. Argios, who's recently passed on. The father. Yes, he was very important to me. Uh, because actually, when we started in 1994, we didn't have a dollar in our pocket, or a euro, or a drachma back then. So what we did, we leased space in his winery, one tank in reality, we leased. But at the same time, I arrived in his winery and I realized that he was a winemaker, not by training, but by experience, should I say? And obviously there were things that they were wrong. So without even discussing with him, I did his wine. And then he was the kind of guy that could see when one was doing something for him. And he embraced what I did for him. And then he didn't even ask for us to pay the rent for this one tank. And then obviously I appreciated his gesture, which was a breath of fresh air for us back then. And slowly, slowly we forged a relation that was based on a mutual understanding where money never came into the equation uh, from neither side. And for many, many years, even when I had my own winery, I would go back and do his own wine uh, because Yanis was who he was and he's, he was. Yeah, I can, yeah. from his heart, speak about yeah, because I can't believe in this day that he has that he has passed away. But there's probably many of his Vincento that he helps create, which are still very much alive. True, absolutely. Yeah, Giannis Paraskalopoulos of <laughs> Gaia State. No, 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 no. You won't go. You won't get away that easy. I will not shut up these, <laughs> these microphones if you don't say my surname correctly. Okay. Give it to me once. Okay, I will. Let's say para, like a parachute. Sure. Para Skevopoulos. Ski, okay. Not ski. Ski is ski. a dog. Para <laughs> Skevopoulos. Giannis para Skivlapoulos. <laughs> Again, para Skevopoulos. Come on, you can do that. Giannis para Skivopoulos. Yeah! You got it. <laughs> okay, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Levy. It's been a, a great one hour or close of uh, interaction and discussion. Thank you for giving me the opportunity of speaking some words about our funky reality, wine reality. It's a reality that he's seen change, but then still live on as it was before. Thank you very much for being here. Thank today. you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.